my name is Kondo Simfukwe. For those of you I don't know, I get to serve as one of the pastors uh, here at Mission Point. And this morning I get to continue our journey, our study um, in the Psalms. And uh, what we're doing is just taking a look at some of the more well-known Old Testament Psalms to ask the question, what might the Lord want to say to us through them this morning, right here, right now. Um, if you've been around the church for any real length of time, then uh, what you quickly find out, what you quickly discover is that every church has a different worship culture about it. Um, and what the trick is, is to try and feel it out, to try and figure out what the worship vibe of that particular church is without embarrassing yourself in the process. Because churches don't do the greatest job of publishing their worship rule book to tell you, like, what's appropriate? What's extreme in a worship context? And so you have to go on this adventure to kind of discover things for yourself. It's really fascinating. And so you might want to know, like, so is it okay to clap at this church? Because I've seen some people do it. I've seen a lot of people do it really badly. And so I don't know the answer to that question. So I'm just going to go with the hands in the pockets. That's just my safe place right there. Right now, you might ask the question like, is it okay to dance at this church? Because I've seen people kind of sway a little bit. I've even seen some people rock. But I've never seen anyone like full out Cartoon dance or anything in the church. So I'm not exactly sure what to do. So I'm going to go ahead with a thigh slap, you know, and just kind of keep it safe and keep it conservative. Or you might ask the question like, is it okay to raise your hands in church there? Because I don't know, I've seen a variety of different kinds and versions of, of hand raising. And I love the way um, the comedian Tim Hawkins describes this. But you may be asking the question like, yeah, is, is it okay? Because I've seen different people do a variety of things from the, the um, you know, hold my baby you know, hand raising to, you know, if you get carried away, then you get to the Simba, to the Mufasa a version of, you know, the hand raising. And if you're really spiritual, every now and then you do like my fish was this big, you know, kind of worship. Or if you're really spiritual, then the fish was really, really massive. Where you do the classroom, like I know the answer. And some of the ladies wash the window a little bit or nay, nay. I can't tell which one it is, but in either case, you are trying to discover like, What's okay and what's not. You know, and if you know you do the Rocky or you just do the full out touchdown, you do the, you know, the heartburn a little bit. There's a variety of ways to do that. Um, but I can't tell which one it is. So I'm just going to go ahead and carry the TV. I'm just going to carry the TV. Maybe widescreen, whatever. Because I'm not sure what is the protocol. But... You've probably asked the question like, what's okay and what's too much and, and, and what's appropriate? What's pushing the limits in a variety of churches? But the more important question is, have you ever wondered if God has a preference when it comes to how you carry or conduct yourself in a worship context? Regardless of what anyone else does, regardless of what anyone else thinks, regardless of what the rule book at any particular church is, have you ever wondered, what does 
God prefer when it comes to our worship. Um, If you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, meet me in Psalm 100. Psalm 100. If you don't have a a Bible, um, uh, gentlemen are going to come up the aisle and will be glad to get one in your hand. Just, you know, raise your hand. This raising of hands is okay. You know, so raise your hand. Let them know you need one. Please, please um, use that. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that. That's our gift to you. Would love for you to hang on to that. But Psalm... 100. And, uh, you know, as, as you turn there, let me just uh, give you a sense of what we're looking at. In, in Psalm 100, David is pulling back the veil. Um, he is clearing up any confusion. He's removing any mystery when it comes to what God enjoys when it comes to our Worship. In fact, the word used for worship in this chapter um, kind of hints at that in and of itself. Let's, let's put this up on the screen so you can see it. But when the word worship is used, it's speaking about acting towards God in a way that pleases him. Some of the version, your versions of the Bible might even use the word serve. It's the idea of acting towards God in a way that's pleasing to him. So David in this chapter is describing, you know, what God enjoys when it comes to worship for anyone who cares to know. See, because in the church, we have become entirely way too obsessed with what we like in worship, with what our preferences are. With whether I like it more conservative or whether I like it more contemporary. With whether I like the electric guitar or whether I just like it a cappella. With whether I like the drums or I just like the piano. Whether I like the hymns or whether I like the choruses. Whether I like this band or that band. Whether I like it rocking or whether I like it stripped down and real organic. We talk a lot about what we want out of a worship service. We talk a lot about what we enjoy in a worship service. And what David does in Psalm 100 is he says, shh. Why don't we ask the better question and talk about what God gets out of the worship service? Let's talk about what God enjoys in our worship. So this is really one of those like, hey, build a tiny bridge. Get over yourself and ask the question, what is it that God enjoys? And that's Psalm 100. And here's what he says. Verse 1. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that he, that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Now, even though this isn't an exhaustive list of everything that God wants or enjoys in in worship, it gives us a glimpse and kind of gets us started down the path towards um, what God wants from us. Because I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church that is entirely obsessed with what God enjoys when we get together to worship him. 
I want to be a part of a church that heaven looks down on and then looks over at God the Father and then looks down and looks over and can just tell every time these folks get together, God seems to be enjoying what's rising up from their midst. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. So, what are some of the things that God enjoys in worship? We see a number of them in this passage. And the first one is this. God apparently really enjoys family-style worship. Who knew? Family-style worship. Uh, The first thing uh, we see in this uh, passage is something that's easy to miss in the logistics of the chapter, but it's the idea that God really, really enjoys corporate worship. He really enjoys it when his kids, who are scattered all over the county, come together in one place and worship him. In fact, that's what this whole chapter is about. It's not speaking about your personal worship, even though it applies to your personal worship. It's not about what you do at your house or in the shower or on your run or in your car. It's talking about the worship that happens when God's kids all get together family style. In fact, if you study the scripture, it's very rare that the Bible is speaking about worship in the individual sense. It focuses primarily on this idea of corporate worship. It's what we would think of as a worship service, such as the one we are sitting in right now. Look at verse 4. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him And praise his name. Now these words, gates and courts, um, courts and gates, are are, are borrowing from Old Testament temple and tabernacle language. Uh, So the temple or the tabernacle was a physical place. Uh, God's children, God's people would come out of their private sectors into this public venue called the temple or called the tabernacle in which, and please don't miss this, the unique presence of God would rest. They understood there is a physical place where the unique presence of God rests. And so they would come out of their respective um, quarters and they would gather together to offer God worship at the temple. At the tabernacle. And so what they would do is they would enter through the gates into the courts of this place in order to worship God together. And so enter and come before ideas like that assume there is something about this kind of worship that involves stepping out of one environment and into the presence of God. Now, understand this. Old Testament, just like we understand today, they knew God is everywhere. His presence is everywhere. But what they understood was that God's unique presence rests in that physical location. So this is speaking of the kind of worship that happens when his people come together 
in his house to worship family style. Uh, By the time we get to the New Testament, uh, Jesus kind of takes that concept, but he he shifts it, you know, kind of switches the paradigm up, but not as much as we might think um, he would. Because here's what Jesus says. He says, now, please understand, there is still a place where God's presence loves to rest very uniquely. But this place is not a building as much as it is a gathered people. What has replaced the temple or tabernacle in the Old Testament is the gathered people of God, where his unique presence rests. That's what Jesus means when he says, where two or more are gathered, there my presence rests with them. Wait a minute, Jesus. Are you saying you're not with me when I'm by myself? No, I'm with you by yourself, but not in the same unique way that I'm with y'all when you come together family style. And so, you can understand why uh, the early church prioritized this getting together. But Jesus says, whenever my people get together in my name, this now becomes a place in which my presence uniquely rests. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4. This is Paul speaking. And he says, so when you are assembled, when you gather together in a church service, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Wait a minute, isn't the power of Jesus present with us when we're in our houses? Yes, but not in the same way he's present when you all get together family style. Because his presence uniquely rests wherever his people intentionally gather in his name. Oh, you didn't realize that you are sitting in his courts right now. Oh, you maybe didn't realize that his unique presence is resting in this place this morning. Whether you realize it or not, or you feel it or not. Not because of the building, but because of the people who've gathered together in his name. And if we moved this situation outside, his presence would rest uniquely in the parking lot. And if we all met in his name in one of your basements, his presence would rest uniquely in that place. As well, there's a reason I am belaboring this point because I think we have lost a sense of the significance of these weekly gatherings called worship experiences, called church services. Our Chinese brothers and sisters risk their lives to make sure they get to a place where other believers are. Why? Because they understand the presence of God rests very uniquely when we come together. The early church understood this and so they devoted themselves to being together in fellowship constantly because they understood the unique presence of God rests in this place. Why? God loves it when his people get together. Family style. And I wonder if we've lost a sense and cheapened these moments. Now, if you're a parent, particularly of um, grown kids um, who kind of are scattered and they live all over the place, then you understand the heart of God, our Father, when it comes to this. 
Because there's nothing against you Skyping those scattered kids and, and looking at your grandkids through a screen. There's nothing against that. But you will acknowledge there is nothing more beautiful than that crazy chaos and overeating and noise and arguments about politics that happen when your family comes together and gathers around the Thanksgiving table. There is something about that moment. And for those of us who have younger kids, we don't fully realize it yet, but we will someday. When we look back and realize, oh my goodness, the kids yelling at each other and throwing food and us having to stay, put down your sister. Like all of those things are actually what this whole thing was about and we'll miss these moments when they are gone. God the Father loves the kind of worship that happens when all of his kids have gathered together in one Place, family, style. And God's redemptive plan, God's redemptive purpose was always about this to redeem people from the tribes of Brazil and from Winona Lake and from Zambia and from Ghana and wherever our college students are spreading out and bring them out of their individual context around the throne to raise one voice to one name, Jesus Christ, because he loves the family style corporate Worship, And I'm just telling you, if you're one of those people who acts like it doesn't make a difference whether or not you come to church or, or if you just choose to worship at home, you've missed a father's heart for his family. He, he listen, he enjoys your private and personal worship, but nowhere near as much as he enjoys when we all get together. Peter says we're all living stones. We may be cute. He may like us. He may enjoy the living stoneness of each of us. But what his plan is, what brings him the great glory, is when he takes living stones and he brings them together to make a spiritual house that he can rest in. Which is what is pictured when we come together on a weekly basis. God loves corporate worship. When we sing together, when we shout together in this context, God enjoys it. I don't know what your level of commitment has been to being in the place where his presence uniquely dwells because his people are together. But I'd invite you, if you want to give God the kind of worship that he enjoys, then make a priority of being with his people and worshiping him there. God loves and enjoys family style worship. Uh, Second thing that that pops up um, out of this passage is, you know, what we might consider a colloquialism of sorts. But God loves, he enjoys turned up worship. Did you know that? Um, He enjoys the really noisy kind of Worship, And I, by that, I don't mean volume and, and decibels as much as I mean expressiveness. He loves expressiveness in our worship. So please hear me. If all you bring to God is a quiet, reserved, held back, conservative type of worship when you show up, um... He's just not that into you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, he, he loves you. He died for you. But he just doesn't enjoy your worship all that much. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you, but you had to know. 
Here's the point. God loves expressive and demonstrative worship. Did you see how this chapter opened? It says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, he says. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Did any of that sound reserved to you? No, me neither. Now, let me just quickly say, uh, in case, you know, you scholars are waiting for some exegetical revelation from this passage. Here, when he says shout, he means shout, like to make noises with your mouth, loud noise with your mouth. Shout. I love that David doesn't bother to try and explain, you know, the logistics and the mechanics of shouting because David is really smart. He knows what you and I know. We know how to shout. We are all shouters. There's no exception in here unless you have some physical limitations. We are all shouters. The only question is what brings the shout out of you? That's the only question. Because your kids make you mad, you shout. Your baseball team loses, you shout. Your baseball team wins, you shout. I don't know if you've ever been to a Warsaw Elementary School basketball game. Parents shout. At the refs, they shout. They shout at other people's children. They shout. We shout. We are shouters. My wife is one of the most reserved, you know, um, personalities that I know. But I have discovered... That if you hide behind a really dark corner and she doesn't know you're coming and you ah, startle her like that, that woman can shout and jump like an NBA player, might I add. That woman can shout and for some of you, the spider brings a shout out of you. You know how to sing exuberantly. I wish I had connections. I would bring Bieber onto the stage right now just to prove that dads can shout too and blame their kids. Well, my kids like Justin, you know, whatever. Whatever. You know how to shout. Karaoke night. Some of you go crazy. We had a volunteer event a couple of Sundays ago. We turned on some oldies. That place, oh man, went crazy. People started, you know, lost touch with their godliness and just started singing very, very exuberantly. David knows what you and I know. We know how to shout. There isn't a single non-shouter. The only question is what brings a shout out of us? What brings the unrestrained song out of us? David was a military genius. And so it's most likely that even in using this word, the word shout, um, he's thinking with some battle undertones. Shouting was used in, um, in battle times for two reasons. Uh, number one, uh, shouting would be used as a war cry. It was your way of alerting everybody. The enemy's coming. It's time to fight. This would be the Sparta. This would be the freedom. The men know what I'm talking about. Ladies, just trust me. There's this war cry that would be raised to tell people it's time to fight. There was a second use of shouting. And the second use of shouting was a 
victory cry. This would be the cry in which somebody comes and shouts, the enemy is down, it's time to party, and everybody would go crazy. I bet you you can guess which use of the word David has in mind when he says, shout for joy to the Lord. What David understands is God is the victor of every battle. God has won the victory and therefore deserves a shout of joy. And those of us who are on this side of the cross ought to believe this even more than David believed this idea. Because there was an enemy who wasn't just coming towards us, but sin and death and Satan had teamed up to take us down. Matter of fact, they had us firmly in their clutches in the prison of war camp. Dragging us towards hell itself when God in heaven dispatched his own military genius, Jesus Christ himself, the commander in chief of the hosts of heaven. And Jesus Christ stepped onto that battlefield called Golgotha and he annihilated sin and Satan. Then when he was done with that, he marched into the battleground called the grave and he just beat death down and unshackled the prisoners of war who were us and he set us free. And isn't that what Easter is? It's Jesus getting up and making the announcement, the enemy is down. Y'all can go in peace and live freely. It's time to party. And what David is saying is if anyone deserves to shout, it's the winner of the battle, Jesus Christ himself. And so he would say, shout for joy to the Lord, the victor of the battle. It's a really powerful concept when you think about it. Shout, raise a cry to the Lord. Some of you have never shouted in church. And um, here at Mission Point, that has to change. Unless maybe you haven't heard, the enemy is down. You are free to go. The victory has been won. Your enemy has been defeated. You can live in peace now. But if you know that, then it has to change that we do not shout for joy to the Lord. God loves turned up worship because it reminds him he's victorious. There's never a reason why you cannot come into the courts of God and raise a victorious shout in his presence. So we're going to practice um, right now. Um, and uh, I love the fact that some of you are breaking out in hives as I speak. <laughs> some of you are looking at your spouses like he's never coming back to church. I know this. Well, he has to come back next week because it's Mother's Day. But after that, he's probably never coming back. But um, I promise we're going to get through this. Um, so please, please don't throw up on the carpet. This is a rented facility. Um, <laughs> And please, I'm going to give you two chances and, uh, to, to get in on this. And, and please know, um, we'll start low level, entry level um, on the shouting. We'll do a mini shout. Um, and uh, here's how it's going to go. I, I'm going to say, Jesus, you've won the war. And y'all are going to mini shout just like this. Let me give you the level, uh, the base level. You're just going to say, yes, you have. That's it. I'll say, Jesus, you've won the war, and you all will say, yes, you have. That's it, and we'll live to see another day. I promise. I promise. You ready to practice? Let's do this. Jesus, you've won the war. Yes, you have. 
All right, man, that was more than I expected. (laughs) That was more than I expected. Let's do that one more time. Jesus, you've won the war. Absolutely, we are shouters now in the house of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. If you are self-conscious, this is a great time for you to ask the question, why? Uh, Not to get mad or upset, but to ask the question, why am I self-conscious? Well, because I think other people, no, other people are too self-conscious about their own shout to worry about your shout. You're not that special, you know, but why, why are you self-conscious. Well, people may think I'm not, you know, dignified and, and you know, educated, a debonair or, what, or whatever. And, you know, I, I may come across as kind of not having things together in, in public, you know, like, you know, Jesus came across as not having things together in public on that cross. I don't know why you are self-conscious, but it's a great opportunity to ask the question. God loves it when we get demonstrative for him at a minimum. Be as demonstrative in his presence as you are wherever you are most demonstrative. Because I realize for some of you, like, uh, that's as loud as I get. Well, great, bring her uh, to him then. <laughs> that's, that's it. It's not about volume. It's about expressiveness when you realize he is the victor over the battle. He loves expressive worship because he understands we are most demonstrative over what we are most excited about. That's just a fact. So if you are not expressive and demonstrative in his presence, it just, it tells him something about your level of excitement. If you never shout to him in the context of a worship gathering, you are not his favorite kind of worshiper. Because he wants you to shout in victory and in joy. But then David tells us something else. And I think it's the idea that God enjoys heartfelt worship. God enjoys not worship that's just turned up, but worship that's heartfelt. Not just exuberant and expressive, but passionate and affected worship. Meaning, if your version of worship is kind of indifferent... Um, it's kind of unaffected, you're over it, um, you're passionless. You're just kind of lethargic in his presence. He's not enjoying it. Look at um, Psalm 100 verse 1 again. It says, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Those are passion words. Now, again, I don't understand why God is all into, you know, us getting all into our feelings when it comes to us expressing ourselves to him. Because my wife is nothing like that. For my wife, like, you know, what she loves is like when we are on a date day and uh, I act like I'm being held hostage. She loves that. She loves it. She loves it when I communicate my affections to her like I'm reading a ransom note. She really enjoys that. Date day is my favorite day of the week. And you are beautiful in your own way, um, I might say. She loves that. She goes crazy over that. No, of course she doesn't. I'd be doing some serious couch time. And you would understand why. 
that is. And yet for some reason we think it's okay. That's how so many of us show up to church on Sunday. So over it. Your arms are folded. You're looking at the clock. You just, eh, you know, I'm reading and singing your lyrics, Lord, like, like it's a ransom note. I sing because you are good. I shout because the song says to shout, you know, and you are just entirely over it. Can I just tell you, God does not enjoy passionless worship from you. That's not heartfelt. He doesn't enjoy that at all. Um, In David's era, it was a capital offense to come into the presence of a king with resting sour face. And oh my goodness, how many of you show up to church with resting sour face? This is just my face, you know? (laughs) All right, Eeyore, listen. But it was a capital offense, and you can understand why. You step into the presence of the most powerful man, you know, on that particular continent, and you have a sour face, he will kill you. And there are two reasons why. Number one, you look suspicious, like you're up to something, just looking all sad and somber and sour, like you're plotting something. Kill him. Dead. The other reason he might kill you is because he's saying, wait a minute, I am the most powerful man in the land. Are you saying there's somewhere you'd rather be? Is there somewhere you'd rather be? And yet that's how we show up into the presence of God. The number of times God should have executed me for a variety of reasons. But just because I come into his presence, like, I mean, you're right. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Death and victory and everything. That's awesome. But I, you know. The NBA playoffs start pretty quickly here. But that's what we often communicate. And what David is saying is God wants and God deserves our most passionate worship and expressiveness towards him. When I was growing up, there was a practice um, that I've gotten out of the habit of. But people would come into church. They would come into the church setting. And you would watch them. They would get into the building, get into the room, and they would sit down and bow their heads. And they would pray. And what they were doing was acknowledging, I am in the presence of the living God. And what they would be typically asking is, God, help me to remember where I am and who you are. And any part of me that's resistant, any part of me that's held back, any part of me that's holding out, would you please affect those deep places so what I give you is affected passionate, heartfelt worship that you deserve. People wouldn't just expect to turn it on and turn it off depending on how well the band is grooving. There would be this invitation for the Spirit of God to come in and affect our hearts. And I wonder if we need to get back into that practice. I I wonder if we need to create space for ourselves and maybe even as a church just to say, can we ask him to come and affect our hearts so that what we give him is something that's meaningful to him? Now, just in case we're tempted to go crazy with the shouts in the fields, David says, but you've also got to use your brain because God enjoys thought-out worship. God enjoys thought-out worship. God is not a fan of impulsive, reckless passion. He wants passion that's engaged and that's thinking and that's processing the truths of who he is, the truths of what he's done. I've never said to my kids, you cannot listen to um, non-Christian music. And, and mainly because I don't know what to do with Mozart, you know, in, the, in, that, in that realm. But what I have talked to my kids about is good music and bad music. 
Um, but here's something that will definitely happen. If my kids start mouthing a song, I will ask them, do you know what you're singing? Do you know what that song means? Do you know what Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds means? And if my kids say no, then I'll say stop singing it. Do not mouth, do not sing what you do not understand. Your mind has to be engaged. And I wonder if the Lord wouldn't say that to some of us. I know you like the beat and I know you like the tune, but have you thought about what it is you are saying to me? There was one time on my wife's birthday when I went all by myself without help, mind you, uh, to the Hallmark store and got her a, a birthday card. It was the most awesome birthday card ever, if I may say so myself. Looked on point. The words were perfect. Uh, The problem was when we got home and she opened it, it was a birthday card to a husband. I'm like, that's why I liked it. That is why I liked it so much. Now listen, it doesn't matter how passionately I hand her that card. It's just not for her. It doesn't matter how many times you sing something to God that's not true about him. It's like, I don't know who you're talking about. But those words don't apply to me. Come with thought. Come with your mind. And in fact, he gives a number of reasons. Look at verse 3. He says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. And we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He actually goes to give us reasons why we should shout, why we should sing, why we should worship. And he says, he is the Lord. He is God. And that's just his way of saying he is the all-sufficient God. He does fine all by himself. Get over yourself. You are never doing God a favor by showing up to a worship service. It's not that he gets to be worshipped by you. It's that you get to worship him. He never needed you and he still doesn't now. He's God. He's all sufficient. That's reason number one. Which should blow you away when it says, and he is the creator. He made us. He didn't need us, but he wanted to make us. Carved us out of dirt. Which means if I were God, I'd constantly be reminding us. Like, apart from me, you wouldn't exist. You know that, right? Yeah? And, and you know, that... That arm that you want to swing to go play golf instead of being in my presence. You know, I made that, right? You know, that mind that resists and rebels against me. You know that I made that mind, right? I did that. He's saying these are reasons why we should come to him. And the greatest reason he gives is we are his people. We are the people of his pasture. He didn't only make us to own us. He made us to know us. And he died, gave his life so that he could know us and it says later his love endures forever it's unchanging he never changes his mind about you regardless of what you did last night regardless of what you do tomorrow he is ever faithful in his love towards us and david is saying for those reasons alone you ought to always come in with a heartfelt passion you died for me that in and of itself should stir passion Because I'm thinking about what he has done. Don't be a, forgive me for saying, a dumb worshiper who just loves the beat but doesn't care about the words. God wants you to think and have reasons for what you do. Um, We're actually going to take a few moments as we, we wrap to... To just sing and worship some more. But before we do that, I want to just give you one more observation. This is a huge observation for us as a church, even as the band comes out. Because something else David points out that I think is easy to miss is the idea that God enjoys non-optional worship. 
Well, I thought he liked heartfelt. Yeah, but God enjoys non-optional worship or will worship. Uh, Look at verse 5. It says, I mean, look at verse 1. He says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before the Lord with joyful song. Thoughtful, expressive, corporate worship is a command. God does not say shout if you feel like it. He wants heartfelt worship. But he's not saying, and if you don't feel it in your heart, then just don't worry about it. God doesn't say sing if you want to. He doesn't say come when you have time. He's saying, I am God and I command that you shout to me. I command that you sing to me. And when it says, hey, all the earth, it says there are no exceptions. We love to talk like that. Like, you know, those black churches and, you know, they get down in the aisles. You know, they're really expressive. He says, no. It's not about that. Or you know those, you know, those young kids and their loud, rambunctious music. Or you know those extroverts and how they love you know, to, to worship really loudly. He's not making exceptions. It's not a personality trait. It is a biblical command. In my house, I will make my kids apologize to each other when they hurt or wrong each other. And my kids will say to me sometimes, but I don't feel sorry. And I'm like, I don't feel like I care about that. <laughs> I don't need you to feel sorry. I need you to acknowledge that what you did was wrong. But I don't feel it. Okay, listen, let's make a deal. When you have your own house, you can make your own rules and you can decide there whether or not you apologize when you don't feel like it. But in this house, and I wonder if God would say that to some of us. Listen, when you make your own world and you create your own people, you can decide whether or not you feel like worshiping me. But in my world, my rules say you worship me because I am God. Sometimes you feel like it. Sometimes you won't. But that's not the determiner. The determiner is God has commanded it and god loves non-optional worship and here's why if my son came to me and said to me um you know i do not want to tell you this i do not feel like telling you this dad but i did something that i know it's the right thing to tell you so therefore i will tell you i would hug that boy and give him a kiss on his mouth i'd be so happy about that I didn't feel like it, but I did it because it's the right thing to do. I will do it anyway. And when you read the Bible, you will hear the psalmist and other saints of the scripture saying, I will praise the Lord. I don't want to, but I will praise the Lord because he is God and because he is victorious and because he has said, I will praise the Lord. And I think what we're going to start finding as a church is that as we will, so we will want. The more I will, the more I want. But in either case, the Lord says, worship me. I've given you a million reasons, but even if not for those reasons, because I said so. And if I say shout, y'all need to say how loud, because I'm God. And we want to be that kind of church. We want to be the kind of church that worships because we want to. But at a bare minimum, we want to be the church that worships because we will. Because he says so. So, man, Lord, I pray that even now as we sing a little bit to you, that you would start to liberate your people 
to worship you with expression, to worship you with passion, to worship you with thought, and to worship you because you are God and you are worthy of our worship whether we feel like it or not. Make us that kind of church. Make us that kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen.